Hi, my name is Josh and I'm one of the leaders here at Christchurch. And we're going to be looking at that passage that was just read for us in Daniel uh, in more detail in a few minutes. But before we do that, I just want to give you a moment to settle yourself in if you have children and you need to get them a snack or some activities. Now's the time to do that. It may be a great time as well to pick up a Bible if you didn't manage to get one before. Because the things that I say, it'd be really helpful if you followed along, if you had the passage open and can check the things that I'm saying are true. So please do use this moment to get yourself a Bible. Um, and while you do that, um, I'll just bring you up to speed of where we're up to. We are in our third week in a series studying the Old Testament book of Daniel. And Daniel is a brilliant book for us today because Daniel and his friends, just like us, have their world turned upside down. They are working out a new normal where all the goalposts have been changed. What they knew and trusted in before seems to have vanished. And they're doing all of that while still trying to navigate a path of being faithful to their God in a world that is opposed to him. And they're facing questions like, well, where is God in all this mess? Might sound familiar. Well, I hope you're back and ready to begin in Daniel, because it's going to be great as we see in Daniel's mad world, God speaks. And the things that God says into Daniel's mad world are the things that you and I need to hear today. As we face similar challenges of navigating an ever-changing world, massive shifts in society and local lockdowns and decisions we don't agree with, and facing all that while still trying to be faithful to a God whose very presence and existence is denied in the world around us. And that's exactly the kind of challenge that today's passage is going to help us work our way through. It's going to help us answer questions like, what drives a Christian in today's world to choose the hard path of uh, living for Jesus, when actually there's an easier alternative? What drives the Christian to love the outsider, even though that is gonna be difficult and take up our time and effort, when actually it's just easier to hang out with friends? Five friends. What drives us to share our faith with a coworker, even though they're just gonna think we're weird and maybe old fashioned? Or if you're uh, tuning in this morning and you're somebody with no faith at all or completely different beliefs to us, then another important question that this passage is going to help us think through is why on earth would you ever consider a life of faith and obedience to Jesus Christ when you could just even more easily just switch off, take your Sunday morning back and go and live the life that you always wanted to live? The answer that we're going to find in Daniel chapter 2 this morning is actually the same reason that we live in, we save up so that we can live in houses rather than shack up in tents. The same reason we would exercise, even though it's hard work, rather than just binge out on ice cream. It's because, and this passage teaches us, it's because we all recognise that it is far, far better to give our lives to Invest our time and energies in something that is lasting. In something that endures. Something that's meaningful. 
and truly important. Far better to do that than to invest all of our time and effort and resources into something that's petty and falling away. And as we look at Daniel chapter 2, that's a perspective it will give us. Let me give you the backstory as we pick up in Daniel chapter 2. We're in the world of ancient Babylon and the king, a man called Nebuchadnezzar, earlier on in the chapter has had a dream. And the dream really, really troubles him. So he summons uh, the royal department of dream interpretation. But they don't know what they're doing. And so reasonable guy that Nebuchadnezzar is, he uh, just orders them to all be executed. Uh, he orders them, as well as all his trained advisors, to be executed because they can't interpret his dream. You'd find that in verses 1 to 13. Now, Daniel and his friends are caught up in all of that because they are also some of his trained advisors. And so we saw last week that Daniel took the only option available to him, which was to cast himself on God in prayer and trust that God would come through for him. And he did. God gave Daniel the same dream and the interpretation that he needed to call Nebuchadnezzar off. So picking up from verse 24, Daniel asks the executioner, that's Arioch in verse 24, he asks him to take him to the king because he's got the interpretation. And so here is Daniel stood in front of the most powerful man on earth and a paranoid megalomaniac at that. And from verses 27 to 45, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar all about the dream and its interpretation. And those are the verses that we're going to be looking at mostly this morning. Now, as we take a look at Daniel 2, before we get into the content of the dream itself, the first place I want to stop off is I want us to notice that there is a truth in here that underlies the whole episode, a truth that Daniel's wording places front and centre, and a truth that it's really urgent and important that Nebuchadnezzar knows. And that truth is, to pinch a phrase that Morris used last week, it's the truth that all human power is borrowed power. Borrowed power. Now, it's tempting to look at any Bible passage and assume it's speaking directly to us. But as we look from verse 30, I want us to notice that Daniel is telling us that this message is first and foremost one for Nebuchadnezzar. Have a look at verse 30. Daniel says, as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I've got greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation. And that you may understand what went through your mind. Now, it's hard for us to see this through Nebuchadnezzar's eyes because most of us don't know the sort of power and wealth he had. It was simply absolute. Not only did he command the allegiance of all his subjects, but also of anyone in all the surrounding nations. He'd conquered all the other superpowers in the known world at the time. Nebuchadnezzar is a man with no rival. And the gods of the nations around him couldn't stand up to him. He's conquered armies. He has conquered gods. The nations 
are in his hands. Nebuchadnezzar is a man who calls the shots. The future is in his hands. And here comes Daniel. And can you see how verses 28 and 29 might sound to a man like Nebuchadnezzar? Daniel says things to Nebuchadnezzar that no one's ever said to him before. In verse 8, he says, verse 28, he says, He, as God, has shown Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. In verse 29, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. In other words, someone else is calling the shots here. It's not you. And God is not asking you, Nebuchadnezzar. He's telling you. No one's ever told him what to do before. But God says, here's what's going to happen. Uh, now, you might find an equal making a request of an equal. Please, can we do this? You might find a boss who says to an employee, a command, you should do this. But there's nothing like this. Here's what's going to happen. It's a statement. There's no argument. Nebuchadnezzar has no say. For the first time in his life, he's having to realise he's got no say in the matter. And this is a big theme in the book of Daniel. For anyone who had thought that all of this mess, all of these problems, all of uh, the mad world they see around them, for anyone who thinks that that's a sign that God has gone missing or lost the plot, we see again and again that God has ultimate power. God is the one above the kings. He is the one calling the shots, not the kings, not the empires. Nebuchadnezzar, you're not in control. When your mind turns to the future, you don't plan it. You're told it. Your course is already set for you. What Nebuchadnezzar has seen in his dream, a statue with um, a gold head. And when Daniel explains it, he says, well, that does acknowledge that Nebuchadnezzar does have power. He may not be the one in charge of history, but yes, he does have power. Verses 37 and 38. Daniel says, your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky. Wherever they live, he's made you ruler over them all. So yes, Nebuchadnezzar is the mightiest person alive. But this dream isn't given so it glorifies the king. Daniel is careful to show Nebuchadnezzar by the way he words this. That actually his power is only his because it's been given to him by God. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power. In your hands, he has placed all mankind. And now this is really important because Nebuchadnezzar has a false grasp of reality until he views himself as being God's servant. That above him there is another in charge. That he's not all powerful that he simply has borrowed power. And now we're not Nebuchadnezzar, but there are two reasons why we also need to overhear this dream. 
And firstly, it's because we would also have a false grasp of reality until we view that all power and rulers have borrowed power. Until we recognise that there is one above them. Now that truth cuts two ways. It's really comforting because it means that as people under God, we've got no need to fear the power or power systems that rule over us because ultimately they don't control history. God has said, here's what's going to happen. So Daniel 2 is training us to get that perspective that our bosses or parents or deans of medicine or head teachers or politicians or media producers, they are in God's hands. God is directing everything in history to where he wants it to be. It's not out of control. So we are in safe hands, no matter what. Do you really believe that? But it cuts the other way as well. It is a challenge because we should recognise that if if power and authority are given by God, then it's our duty to, to listen to and submit to our God-given rulers and leaders. Now, the rest of the Bible is very, very clear on that. Even when some of the things they do are not trustworthy. Even when they're ruling in ways that don't glorify God. They're still placed by God and we ought to submit to them. Now in the next chapter, chapter 3, and in Daniel chapter 6, we do uh, start to learn where to draw the line. At what point should we actually separate those allegiances and actually listen to God and obey him rather than our leaders. But so far in Daniel, all we've seen him do is walk in wisdom, submitting to the God-given ruler. He trusts in God, he listens to God and he obeys God, but that helps him to be faithful and live rightly, even under a wicked king. The second reason you and I need to hear this message to Nebuchadnezzar, though, is because sometimes, yes, we're not Nebuchadnezzar, but you know, sometimes we are little Nebuchadnezzars in a small way. Here's what I mean. Have a look again at verse 38. Look at the claim about his power. In your hands, he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky, wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. Really? Is that true? So, so does Nebuchadnezzar have rule over the gold-crested egret that nests on the cliffs of Chile? And he rules over the antelope bounding across the Serengeti Plains? Really? Well, you know, it is true insofar as these verses actually apply to all mankind in general, because these, this verse echoes God's words to the very first humans in creation. God said to Adam and Eve, you are here to rule over the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky and the fish in the sea. And the fact that this is mentioned here of Nebuchadnezzar points to the fact that Nebuchadnezzar's borrowed power is just an extension, yet it's an amplification of, but it's just an extension of actually the borrowed power that we all have from God. That he has placed us all in a position of dominion and authority over his creation. 
And so, we also need to listen to Nebuchadnezzar's lesson. That we've got a false grasp of reality until we realise that not only our leaders, but we have borrowed power in this world. And we all have some borrowed power. We all have some sphere of influence. Perhaps some of you really are bosses. You're over people in your workplace. And perhaps you get to shape the systems of your company. Or you can ask people to do what you want them to do. Maybe it's that you have influence in your family. The things you say are listened to. In fact, every time you speak, you're exercising influence over others. You are in charge of your little kingdom that you can shape. And if that's the case, then we need to consider carefully what we should use our borrowed power for. Because just like Nebuchadnezzar, I suspect that we have a tendency to build up our own little empires. Uh, that we want to be gaining trust and a commanding position, getting ourselves secure and enjoying comfort. And that makes us lash out when we don't get our own way. And if that is the case, well, we need to take more of a look then at the rest of the dream. Because God has got something to say to Nebuchadnezzar and people like him. And it concerns a vanishing statue. And that's the second thing we're looking at, the vanishing statue. So let me tell you about the dream, <clears throat> verses 31 to 35. Nebuchadnezzar sees a gigantic dazzling statue. It's made of four different segments, each made from a different material. The top is gold, and next it's silver, then bronze, and then uh, iron, or an iron and clay mix. And then, next in the dream comes something that's quite almost impossible to, to picture what happens. A rock is cut out of a mountain, but all we know is that it's not with human hands. The rock then strikes, I don't know if it's thrown, but it strikes at the feet of the statue and causes the whole statue to crumble. In fact, a better word might be shatter, because it ends up not as a pile of rubble, but as fine dust. And then there's a little breeze. The wind blows the dust away, and it all has just vanished into thin air. And after this ginormous, imposing, dazzling statue, all that remains on the floor now is just one tiny little rock. But then the rock grows and grows and grows and grows until it's a mountain. And the mountain grows and eventually it covers the whole earth. Now, strange as that dream is, the explanation is fairly straightforward. And it is really a sobering explanation for a power-hungry empire builder like Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel explains in verses 36 to 43 that each segment of that statue is a kingdom, a kingdoms that follow others throughout history. Now we'll get exactly to what each bit represents in a bit, but I want to see this how Nebuchadnezzar would have seen it without hindsight to start with. He wouldn't know which kingdoms are which, which ones follow him, but the message is still sobering. It is this. Neza, you ain't going to be here for long. Your rule 
which is so vast and absolute right now, is going to end. Not only that, your legacy will fade. Eventually, you and all those who come after you will be nothing more than myths, ruins and wisps of smoke. It's hard for us to imagine the magnitude of that message. It's saying that everything that, that now seems so strong, so consistent, so immovable and imposing, everything that is powerful and permanent, everything we know will, will vanish and they'll be forgotten. There will one day be a generation who cannot imagine the types of clothes we wear, who have no clue what kind of music we listen to. There's an artist in America, a guy called Andres Amador, and he makes beautiful, intricate pat uh, uh, patterns in his art, in the pictures he draws. You'll see up here one of his pieces. It is lovely to look at, isn't it? It's a wonderful piece of art. Uh, it took hours to make, and uh, it's just lovely to look at. It's his life's work to create these pieces of art. But can you see what his canvas is? Look closely. Come closer if you need to. Have a look. What is his canvas? It's sand. Andres Amador draws his art on beaches. And so the nature of what he commits his life to as an artist is that it will all be washed away when the next high tide comes. And it vanishes. To look at his work on a Monday is breathtaking. But if you come back on a Tuesday, it's gone. There's no trace of it left. And that's the reality of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom that God sees. And that's the reality God wants to, to show Nebuchadnezzar. And it's the reality that you and I ought to be seeing as well. It's strange. I think we, we do believe that reality when it comes to ancient Babylon. Of course, we know that the dream proved true. Nebuchadnezzar isn't here anymore. And we know that politically, Babylonia doesn't exist. The city of Babylon's a pile of rocks just south of Baghdad. The nation it's in is called Iraq, and that's not a global empire. We believe it when it comes to Nebuchadnezzar, but we struggle to believe it when it comes to our world. We just can't get our head around that the idea that one day the idea of Britain should be forgotten. The English language will just be ancient relic. The street that your house is on is going to be a field. No one will ever know there are houses there. The shops that you shop in are going to be a motorway. Our universities will be ancient fables and the NHS will be washed away like sand on a beach. And the vanishing statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and the fact that it really did come true, 
that his kingdom and all the ones after it have long since disappeared, this dream should awaken us to the sobering reality that the things that we give our lives to right now are just so fragile. I think that one of the things as Christians we should be learning in the days of a global pandemic like we have is, is just that. We should be learning that God has told us all along that we can't put our securities and our identities into power structures or societies that seem strong because they're actually fragile. We can't put our identity in things like our, our job or our family or our finances. We're learning, aren't we, that we can't always bank on Tesco to have food on the shelves or on universities running their courses or on the banks always keeping our money safe. The world really can change in a few months. It's true. Statues vanish. And how much more so of our own little kingdoms, our spheres of influence, the promotion I'm so desperate for, uh, the family that I've worked so hard for, or getting our name known. Listen, wake up to the fact that if you pour your life into your kingdom, all you're doing is making a sketch in the sand, moments before the tide rolls in. Now, if that all sounds a little bit doom-mongering, a bit morbid, it's not to say that we mustn't work or care about the world around us. Daniel and his friends are, in fact, a brilliant example of that. They have got high-powered jobs. They do work hard. They do engage with every area of their city's life. And there are Christians, and the Bible says that Christians should be doing that, engaging in art and culture and education and literature and politics. But Nebuchadnezzar's statue is, is a, a jolting reminder that teaches us not to get comfortable there, not to fall for the illusion that a dazzling statue can't vanish in a second, and not to be surprised if we find the foundation starting to crumble. But this dream doesn't end there. It does go on to show us that in such a passing and fragile world, there is a kingdom that is worth living for. And that's a picture of the, the part of the vision we haven't yet looked at, that there is a growing mountain. A growing mountain. The statue was amazing. Its disappearance was shocking. But the real climax of the whole vision is this little tiny rock. A tiny rock with the power to shatter a ginormous metal monument into a thousand tiny pieces. We see that sometimes, don't we? A tiny thing halting the mighty in its tracks. A tiny little mouse. <laughs> that closes down a whole restaurant. A minute shard of glass that bursts a tire and shuts down the whole motorway. And here's the surprising turnaround in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, that there is a small, tiny, insignificant movement, and it's not human movement, that has the power to change the face of the earth. In verses 44 and 45, Daniel explains for us what that rock is all about. He says that that rock is God's kingdom. 
And not only is Nebuchadnezzar not in charge of history, he's not even in charge of his own life or his own legacy. That's going to vanish. But there is one who is in charge of all those things. There is somebody who is doing something that will grow, that will outlast and outstrip all those other kingdoms. The God who is in charge has a plan and he's giving Nebuchadnezzar a sneak peek. So he mustn't fall into thinking when we look at a mad world that the kind of the wheels have come off or that God is in charge, but he's sort of wandering aimlessly through history. God's got a plan and he is bringing it to fruition. And here's what we learn. In the third empire after Nebuchadnezzar, God's kingdom will actually come and usurp all others. And it's at that point in history that we're going to see God's kingdom grow and grow and grow. It grows so much that one day the whole earth will see and acknowledge God's rule and reign. And it's at this point that you and I get the advantage of looking back into the passage through the lens of history. Because if Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold, then what comes after him is the, the kings that followed him in the Persian Empire. History records that that was the next kingdom after Babylon. It was led by Darius the Mede, eventually. But during the days of Darius the Mede, there was a third kingdom, the, the, the belly and thighs, the bronze kingdom. And that was the kingdom of Greece, led by Alexander the Great, whose whole conquest had a massive climax in a pursuit of Darius the Mede, who he eventually killed. Then it was the Greek Empire, and just as verse 39 says, Alexander's empire was extensive. The history books tell us that when he was just in his 20s, Alexander wept because there were no more worlds to conquer. And yet eventually that third kingdom also fell and gave way to a fourth kingdom. And history shows us that that is the Roman Empire. And just as in the vision in verses 40 to 43, that empire was so strong like iron, they could defeat anyone, and yet it was mixed. It was such a, a big kingdom, big empire, that there were so many different cultures and languages, and eventually it was mixed by because it was split into two in order to rule it properly. And it really was in the days of the Roman Empire that God's movement became visible. In the days of the Roman Empire, down to earth, came a tiny, insignificant little rock that was to change the face of history forever. It came in the form of a tiny baby born out of wedlock in a barn. His name was Jesus of Nazareth. He was insignificant. He was poor and weak. But he grew up and he preached. And what was his message? The kingdom of God is at hand. And it was Jesus of Nazareth who then, by his ministry, established God's kingdom on earth. He revealed it for what it really is. Jesus of Nazareth showed us that God's kingdom on earth, this rock that grows into a mountain, is a body of people gathered around the rock, a body of people who are in a relationship with Daniel's God, with the God who reveals mysteries. And Jesus taught, and what he taught was the ethics 
of God's kingdom. That those in this kingdom gathered around the rock are people who love God and love other people above ourselves. And Jesus did miracles. And in those miracles, he demonstrated that in this kingdom, there was power to drive out and expel all evil and sickness and even death. And because of his authority, his teaching and all his power, Jesus proved that he himself is in fact the king that God has set over his kingdom. And being in his kingdom means gathering round him, coming to him, listening to him and submitting to him as the king. And yet the conquering king who shatters empires into pieces didn't do that by force and violence. He was no Nebuchadnezzar. He conquered by suffering violence. Because as Jesus died on the cross, he was standing in the place of all the enemies of the kingdom. He was standing in my place and yours so that he could bear that the empire shattering wrath that we deserve for opposing that kingdom with our borrowed power. And he died in agony, taking our punishment so that people like you and I, little Nebuchadnezzars who can't help but borrow God's power but steal his glory, but to make a way that you and I can actually be counted as friends and be welcomed into the kingdom. And Jesus then rose from the dead and he never died again and he went to heaven so that you and I can have full confidence that Nebuchadnezzar's dream has come true so far and it will come true in future. Because that this kingdom will one day fill the whole earth because Jesus promised to come back. And on the day he does, the entire world will see and acknowledge his rule and reign. That's what this dream is all about. The vanishing statue isn't some morose reminder that nothing is permanent. We are dust and dust will return. No, it's a pointer to the rock. It's a pointer to the fact that there is actually something permanent. There is actually something that we can trust, that we can invest our lives in and our energies in. It's just not what you might think on the outside. And so it leaves us with a choice of how to use our borrowed power. Do we use it to build our own kingdom, to consolidate our influence, to have more and more followers and to live at ease? Or do we look to the rock, live and speak for Jesus with the confidence that his kingdom is the one that's not passing? His kingdom is the one that is growing and growing, and his kingdom is the one that we will eventually see with our own eyes, outlasts all the others. Now, that doesn't mean that we all quit our jobs and just become missionaries and evangelists, although that is one option. But working for this kingdom is gonna happen in all of our little daily spheres of life, in the way we go about our normal jobs. Then those normal jobs actually do have significance for God's kingdom. In fact, without God's kingdom, they, they wouldn't. They would be dust. But because as Christians, we have a hope in this kingdom, then it gives a brand new significance and importance to all the tiny little decisions we make in the course of our days. 
if we are living for Jesus' kingdom, we're going we're gonna to believe that it's more worthwhile to cook a meal for our lonely neighbour, even though it's going to take up a lot of our precious time, rather than to use that time to work overtime, get ahead in our work so that we can have a promotion. We're going to see that it is better to be people who acknowledge our failings before others and ask for forgiveness than it is to lie and cover up so that we keep our influence and consolidate our own little kingdoms. And back to the answers of the questions I asked right near the beginning. Why do Christians choose to love the outsider even though it brings no benefit to them, even though it's costly? Well, do you see? Because if you hang out with your friends just to pad your own kingdom with ease and leisure, then it's going to be worthless when it's all washed away when the tide comes in. But if by loving the outsider we are obeying Jesus, we are living out his rule in our lives, we're imitating the king, well then we're doing something which has got a lasting impact. Not just beyond our generation, but, but forever. Why would you share your faith with a co-worker, even if they think you're a little bit mad? Well, do you see? It's because if we keep quiet so that we can save face, then we're just pampering the ego of our own little vanishing statue. But if we speak the truth about Jesus and his kingdom, then we're joining in with building, it, with building the lasting kingdom. And if you'd say that you're not a Christian or you're not into religion, then why would any of this be relevant? Well, do you see, it's because anything that you give your life to will end, just like dust blows away in the wind. But by giving yourself to Jesus, looking to him, learning about him, relating to him, praying to him, listening to him, well, he will give you a confidence and an identity that, that can't be shaken, no matter which kingdoms crumble around you. And it means that you can live your life where every decision, every interaction, everything you do can be lived out for Jesus' glory and will matter. It will have eternal significance. So Nebuchadnezzar's dream, it's a weird one, but it's a good one. Because in our mad and topsy-turvy world, it's good to know that there is a God behind it and that he's guiding the course of history. It is good to know that he has a plan and it is good to know that you're invited. So won't you give up building your vanishing statue and this week, step out in the confidence that when you live for Jesus and speak for Jesus, you are living as a citizen of a kingdom that will last forever and will one day fill the whole earth. Let's pray about that, shall we? Lord God, God of heaven, God of history. We want to repent today of building our own kingdoms, our own images and statues, using our borrowed power that you've given us to, to create a nest here on earth, 
a glory here on earth that will one day be washed away and vanish. Thank you, Lord, for showing us this. In your mercy, you have directed us to an eternal kingdom that gives so much more value and significance to our lives. And so we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would go with us this week and enable us to live for your kingdom, to speak for your kingdom, to trust in Jesus, to love and obey him in whatever area of life we're in. We ask for your help. In the name of Jesus, our King. Amen.